the speed that I, I, I'm going to try to go slow enough that you get it. And uh, I will make these notes available. So if you do miss some things, uh, I already have them printed, and I'll make them available right after class today. Um, if we get through all of it, I'll, I'll make them available regardless after class today. Uh, but we may take two weeks on this. There's a lot to deal with uh, in the book of Psalms. Uh, the book of Psalms is 150 uh, different individual psalms uh, that are a collection of prayers, uh, poems, uh, hymns, and the primary focus, the primary theme, uh, there are sub-themes and there are other, other things dealt with in here, but the primary purpose, the primary theme uh, of psalms is to uh, bring a worshiper's thoughts and minds and hearts uh, into uh, a, um, thinking on God and giving Him praise and adoration and giving Him preeminence in their life to have the right view of Him. And uh, one of the great things, I, I, as I was growing up as a teenager, uh, I had some youth uh, teachers in my Sunday school class that said, well, you ought to read one proverb a day. And I think there's a wonderful, wonderful benefit to reading one proverb a day. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And so for many years, I did one proverb a day. The one that is associated with the day of the month is what normally most people do. And it's easy to remember that way. And then uh, as I got into college, uh, a fellow shared with me one time. He said, if you'll read one psalm a day, it'll change your life. And I started to practice many years ago reading one psalm a day. And boy, it's, it's done so much for me over the years in keeping our hearts and our minds and our view on the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, there's a, there's a tremendous uh, work of literature that is out there, a commentary on the book of Psalms written by Charles Spurgeon. Now, again, you have to keep in mind that it's written by a man. It's not inspired. And so there may be some things you may or may not agree with, with him. But the name of the volume is called Treasury of David. A uh, tremendous uh, set of commentaries. Uh, they are all of Spurgeon's works are public domain, so you can actually find them. Um, you don't have to buy the books. You can actually go online and read them and uh, open them up. I think a lot of folks have even converted them into audio uh, where they've just read them. Uh, you can find them, I think, on YouTube and other audio places. And I'm going to tell you, there's an awful lot of depth of thought that Spurgeon gives to each psalm that is, is certainly amazing to me as I've read over the years and studied a lot of his writings on the Psalms, uh, things that sometimes we gloss over or we miss that are shown in the Psalms. And uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, I don't know what your normal reading schedule is, but uh, especially if you struggle with anxiety or, or concern in the day that we live, uh, to read a Psalm a day, it, it's just amazing what it'll do for your heart, how it'll draw you closer to the Lord. And uh, when you get to Psalm 119, uh, the longest psalm, it's a big one, and uh, it's divided into what are called octets of verses, eight verse sections, and each one is given a letter of the Hebrew alphabet uh, to identify them, and so when I get to there, as I go through the psalms, I just read one octet of those a day, uh, so it's a relatively easy thing to do. Most psalms are you know, 10, 15 verses max, a few of them are longer, a few of them are shorter, but uh, they're, they're wonderful, wonderful things. They were uh, originally, historically, divided into five separate books. And their breakdown was uh, chapters 1 through 41 was considered one of the books of the Psalms. 
Chapters 41 to 72 was considered the second book of the Psalms. Chapters, I, I call them chapters. They're not in Psalms. We don't call them chapters. We call them Psalms. But uh, Psalms 73 through 89 um, would be considered the third book, and Psalm 90 through 106 would be the fourth book. And then Psalm 107 to Psalm 150 would be the fifth book. And historically, uh, they were divided that way. Years ago, uh, prior to the King James Version of Scripture coming out, they decided to include them all as one book, although a lot of your Bibles will still have uh, the, the five book uh, titles in, at, those, uh, at those mark points throughout your Psalms. Uh, so you may see like in Psalm 1, you'll see book 1 before the first Psalm. And um, so uh, if you see that, that's what, that's what that's referring to, is the five different uh, historical books that they were written in. Uh, there were parts of it that were used regularly as a hymnal. The way we use a hymnal today is similar to how they would have used it back then. Uh, I think it was 53 of the psalms specifically were written to be sung with a stringed instrument. They were, uh, in fact, in the superscript that's uh, above each of the chapters, uh, there are certain ones that are given uh, titles that in, in give the indication that they are to be sung with a stringed instrument. And they would be used oftentimes in uh, the uh, worship time of Israel when they would come to the temple and they would have uh, a time of uh, individual uh, or even corporate worship where they'd come together as a group. They would sing these hymns, much like we sing hymns in the beginning of our services, to kind of prepare the heart and to uplift the Lord Jesus Christ, to give praise to Him and, uh, and to God. Um, there are seven types of psalms. I'm going to go through these and share with you what each of them are, and we're going to talk a little bit about one or two of them. But you could take all of the psalms and divide them into seven different categories, um, if you will, or, or uh, seven different groups uh, of psalms. They're not uh, numerically in order. Uh, they're spread throughout the psalms. But um, there is the psalm, uh, there's a type of psalm that is known as the psalm of lamentation. Now, these would be psalms that uh, Israel was more than likely in bondage during that time. They were going through perhaps some of the chastening of the Lord. And these would be prayers of lamentation, oftentimes uh, include repentance in there and a call for God to bring deliverance to them. But uh, they, there were uh, a number of those, and I've got those chapters, li- or those psalms listed in the notes. I won't take time to go through all of them. Uh, in, uh, in the class time, but you can uh, see a list of the ones that are considered to be psalms of lamentation. Then we have, secondly, psalms of thanksgiving. Those are the ones we love to read, especially around Thanksgiving time. They certainly encourage our hearts. And there are a number of those that uh, are psalms of thanksgiving that deal with the gracious acts of God to man. And, you know, it's interesting because uh, we use the, that word gracious acts of God to man. The truth is, any, any blessing that God brings to man that we have to be grateful for is only because of His grace. We deserve none of it. And uh, when you read these psalms of thanksgiving, it causes our hearts to, to swell and to love Him more because we understand we don't deserve any of this. It's given to us out of God's bounty, out of His goodness, out of His long-suffering, out of His mercy, out of His grace, out of His love for us. And even when we are not lovable, and I say are not because we certainly were sinners before we were saved, and, but you know, we continue 
uh, to live in the flesh sometimes. And God continues to be gracious to us. So much so that the Bible tells us that were it not for His mercies, we'd be consumed every day. And I'm thankful that we have such a God that is so long-suffering and loving to us and causes us to, to uh, give more thanks and have our hearts so overwhelmed with gratitude. Then we have what are called the enthronement psalms. The enthronement psalms. Now these are psalms that lift up God to the highest level uh, put him in his rightful place. We would use the word, the Bible word would be preeminent one. He is uh, the, the Lord and the King of creation. He is the Lord and King of time. He is uh, supreme. He is the sovereign ruler of his plan of eternity, throughout eternity and through the time that he has created for man. And uh, while he gives man a free choice, there is a plan that God works throughout uh, from the beginning of uh, creation until he gets through with it all and at the end of it. Uh, and so these psalms are psalms that um, cause our minds to focus uh, on the, um, the magnitude, the supremacy of God, the preeminence of Him in all of creation, in all, of, uh, the, all that there is, uh, his, his proper role and place in these things. Then there are psalms that are known as the pilgrimage psalms. And these are psalms that the nation of Israel would often sing uh, on the way to or from Jerusalem when they were going to uh, a holy festival or feast that was to be observed. They would sing these psalms and it would prepare their hearts for the observation of the things that they were getting ready to go celebrate. Uh, we do something similar. We, we celebrate Christmas time. And uh, while I, I know that uh, that's not the time that the Lord Jesus Christ was born throughout the year, uh, it is the time that we've set aside to celebrate His birth. And so when the time comes around Christmas time or Thanksgiving or as early as I can get the song leader to start singing them, we start singing Christmas uh, hymns. And uh, a similar situation. These folks were going to a feast or a festival. And understand, uh, sometimes when we study the feasts of Israel, we think, well, those are obligations. These were joyous festivals for these folks. These were things that people would observe and uh, would oftentimes have the great zeal and desire, much like we observe things like Easter and Christmas and, and things where we uh, look to the Lord Jesus Christ as, uh, as our Savior and our Redeemer and the joy that we have during those times. Uh, these are the way that the nation of Israel did uh, when they would go to these festivals and, so, and these feasts that were to be observed. Uh, there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of joy. There was a lot of drawing their hearts to the Lord. And as a result of that, they would take these uh, psalms that were called pilgrimage psalms, and they would sing them. Uh, I was talking to uh, the folks from my place this morning, and uh, they all greeted me down there. And I, I said, "Are y'all? What are y'all doing today?" And they said, "We're going to sing." So I said, "Are you singing some songs today?" They said, "We sang them on the way here." And I thought, you know, what a wonderful thing! Wouldn't it be wonderful if uh, on Sunday mornings when we're coming to church, instead of arguing in the car and being late with the you know the kids and the wife and the husband or whatever it is and all the things that Satan chunks in our way to try to discourage us, if we just sing on the way to church and just kind of prepare our hearts and have a pilgrimage hymn or song that we have. And these are the psalms that are much like that, the pilgrimage psalms. Then we have the royal, the royal psalms. Royal psalms would be sung in praise and adoration to the earthly kings of Israel, but always had a connotation or a reflection of the earthly king being a representative of 
their heavenly king, that he was the one that was being used by God to lead the nation. And uh, so even though it was oftentimes given as a praise to the earthly king that was there, uh, in those psalms there is a distinct tie or draw to viewing Christ as their heavenly king, uh, or God as their heavenly king. Then we have the wisdom psalms. There's only three of these. And uh, these are psalms that bring instruction in righteousness. They give us wisdom. There are three of them. Chapter number one is a great one. Uh, When you read Psalm 1, there is so much in there. Uh, There was a time where I did a series on Psalm 1, and I think it was seven or eight weeks long, and it was not repetitive. It was just new material each week. There's so much to glean from that that is instructive, that helps us with so many things. Psalm 119, certainly another great instructive psalm uh, on the law of the Lord and uh, uh, the, uh, the impact that it has on us, cleansing our way, keeping us from sin, uh, the delight that we ought to have for it, and uh, how it, how it uh, helps us in the way. Uh, psalm 37 is another one of the wisdom psalms. So there's only three of them that uh, we have listed here. Uh, so we have uh, psalms that just help instruct us in righteousness. We know from the New Testament when Paul told Timothy where he said all Scripture, 1 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for uh, doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and then he says for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. It doesn't mean he's going to be sinless, but he'll be matured, he'll be grown, he'll be equipped, he'll be uh, filled, if you will, and completed. Uh, and thoroughly done so, all the way. In fact, uh, my Bible says throughly. There's some Bibles that say throughly, some that say thoroughly, uh, but uh, both of them meaning the same thing there. And uh, interesting that uh, there are things that the Bible certainly uh, have here for no other reason than to teach us uh, how we should live and things that we should uh, be instructed in. And then we have uh, the last one, and these are... Um, these are a little bit hard to understand. I want to take a few minutes on this one to express a couple things about them. These are called the imprecatory psalms. And uh, these are psalms where uh, the folks that are singing them are praying for God's judgment to come on His enemies. And uh, I know sometimes we, we think of something like that and we think, well, doesn't God in the New Testament tell us to uh, forgive our enemies, to love our enemies, to... Be good to them uh, and to not judge them in uh, the way, in a judgmental way, uh, over certain things. There are some things I want us to understand about these psalms that will help us to understand and clarify this. Number one, all of them are calling not for man's vengeance or, re, or uh, uh, revenge about something, but they are calling for God's righteous judgment against his enemies. And uh, God's righteous judgment is always right. Uh, there are times in our, in our system here in the United States, and more and more as we see our, our uh, things being corrupted so much, uh, and the moral laws of man being thrown, uh, uh, thrown away, and the moral laws of God being thrown away in our country, uh, there are times that we look at the justice system in our country and we say, that was, that was not just. It was not right. But can I tell you this, that when God brings judgment on sin, it is always right. He has every right to do so. He is absolute righteousness. He is absolute just. Uh, 
And there is never a time where we can look at it and say God was unfair. He's always just. And so understand this, that when these prayers are made in the Psalms, uh, these imprecatory prayers, that they are uh, for the purpose of encouraging God and praying to God that He will bring His justice uh, to bear on, on His enemies. Then I want you to notice that they ask God to punish the wicked uh, in order to vindicate the righteousness of God. Um, they don't want to wink at sin. They don't want to become known as becoming light on sin. By the way, it would do us well today to make sure that we have a proper view of sin and its absolute sinfulness. Uh, we live in a day where even God's people oftentimes, and I'll tell you this, even pastors oftentimes will, will have those things that they just say, you know what, that's not that big of a deal. And it is. These things are sinful things. And uh, so it's a way for the nation of Israel to um, indicate and keep their hearts and minds on the sinfulness of the wickedness that was going on, that they did not uh, become uh, accustomed to it or apathetic to it. Um, then I want you to notice uh, that these always condemn sin. Um, in the Hebrew way of thinking, and you have to understand this, and in fact, Jesus even rebuked some of the Jews when he was on earth because of their thinking of this way. But in the Jewish way of thinking, the Hebrew way of thinking, there is not a whole lot. In fact, in most cases, there's not any distinction made between the sin and the sinner. Um, I'll give you the illustration from the New Testament. Uh, there was a man who was, uh, uh, who was uh, 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 a paralytic, uh, and uh, I think he was paralytic. And the disciples asked the Lord, if you'll remember, he said, uh, which one sinned, this man or his parents? And the reason was, that, and we look at that and we say, well, they were being overly judgmental. But that is the Hebrew way of thinking. They don't, they don't make a distinction between the sin and the sinner. And so the way that they express their, their uh, disdain, their skewing of evil, is to display it towards the person that committed the sin, because they don't make that distinction between the two. Um, and, of course, Jesus told the disciples, he said, you know, you, you got it wrong. This man didn't sin, neither did his parents, or at least that's not why he's sick. Uh, he's sick because I need to be glorified, and I'm going to be glorified by, by healing him. And that was the, the lesson that the Lord Jesus was teaching them at the time. So these imprecatory prayers are, again, uh, the, the Hebrew way or the Jewish way of uh, saying we, we want to make sure that these sins are dealt with. Uh, again, understand they're under the letter of the law at this time. And, and uh, this is something that they were uh, very much in practice with. And so we need to keep that in mind when we read these psalms. Uh, what their intent was. The idea was to uh, make sure that the observation of the sin did not grow cold or apathetic. Um, and then I want you to notice then also that there are times in Scripture that God does uh, expect there to be judgment of His people on the sins of others. Um, I'll give you a couple of instances. Christ, of course, uh, in His own earthly ministry, uh, would put a curse on a few cities. Uh, there are times throughout Scripture God has done this. He's cursed cities like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, he talked about them even in his own earthly ministry. But if you'll remember when he was telling his disciples 
to go out and to share the gospel and to go from town to town. He did tell them, he said, if you have a town that rejects the gospel, they, they refuse it, they're, they're stiff-necked about it, he tells them to shake the dust off of their feet. And the verse after that says that it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in that day than for these, than for these that have rejected the gospel. And, and the, the idea that even the disciples were told by their actions to indicate that uh, God was, was putting Ichabod on this city or, or was rejecting the city because of their rejection of the gospel. And there are times that we are to judge things. Uh, we've got to make sure in one of these days here, probably fairly soon, I'm going to be doing a, a, probably a two or three uh, lesson series on judgment, things we are not to judge and that we're not to, to be judgmental on, but there are things we are to judge and we are to be judgmental on. And understand this, that it will always be that we're to judge in, in accordance with what God's Word judges. And we're not to put our own judgment in that place or say that uh, I think this is wrong or I just don't think that's right. We must come back to Scripture. And that is the standard with which we judge. And so we'll do a series on that, and, and hopefully it'll be a help to you. But this idea that goes around today, and even a lot of God's people, a lot of churches teaching, that there's never time for a Christian to be judging anything. That is not true. Uh, the Bible is very clear that there are certain things we are to judge, and uh, even to pray for. Uh, and so uh, pray that uh, God will give us insight as we delve into that subject, because that can be a very controversial subject in the day we live. A lot of people feel very strongly about some things on that. But it's important that we know what the Bible says on it. Uh, there are some things that we are to judge, some things that we certainly are not to judge. Uh, the author of, of the Psalms, uh, typically we say, well, David authored the Psalms. And the reason we do that is uh, between 73 and 75 of them are attributed to him, depending on which source you read. Uh, as to which ones are his. Uh, if you go by the superscripts that are in uh, above each chapter or each psalm in your Bibles, uh, there are 73 of those that are attributed to David. There are two of them that are questionable, but seem to be indicated in the New Testament that he also authored those. Um, and so it could be as many as 75. Asaph, who was uh, the musician, the chief musician uh, in the court of David during the time that he was king, uh, is attributed with 12 of the Psalms. There are 10 of them that are attributed to the sons of Korah. And uh, the sons of Korah were uh, a group like, like a, a choir that would always go around and sing praise to the Lord. And so 10 of those are attributed to the sons of Korah. Two of them are attributed to uh, King Solomon. One of them, believe it or not, is attributed to Moses, if you can imagine. Uh, all the way back to the time of Moses, one of these was, uh, Psalms was written. And then there was one each by a man by the name of Heman and Ethan. Uh, these two men are found in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 31, and 1 Chronicles chapter 15 and verse number 19. These two each wrote one psalm. And these are ones that we can pretty much come to agreement on. There's enough evidence historically and internally biblically to say these ones were specifically written by these folks. There are a few people out there that will say, well, there's not enough evidence for some of these. 
But it's been historically accepted for many, many years. There's been a ton of evidence shown for these that these ones we can certainly say we know are pretty much these are the people who wrote them. However, there are 50 other psalms that do remain anonymous. There's not enough evidence to know exactly who wrote them. Understand when we talk about the writers, uh, we're not talking about people who sat down and came up with these on their own. We're talking about men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. And they penned what the Holy Spirit of God gave them to pen. And so whether it's David or Asaph or Moses, uh, the other 50, there are a number of the ones in the, in the 50 that a lot of people think Ezra wrote. But can I tell you this? At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter who the human author was. We need to understand and know that all of them were given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And uh, that's the important thing when we look at these authors. The Psalms cover a time period as far as their writing. And this is incredible to me. The, it, because of the one that was written by Moses, they began being written as early as 1410 or so B.C. Uh, in the time of Moses. And they were written all the way up through the time of the post-exile time uh, where you would have Nehemiah and Ezra and Micah and some of these guys, um, Haggai, um, which would have been around 430 B.C., so about a thousand years of these psalms being written. You say, well, why is that important? Because we, whether we think this or not, the psalms are a very prophetic set of psalms. There are 22 distinct, very specific prophecies given about the Lord Jesus Christ that were written over a thousand-year period. And every single one of them came to the letter, came true. I'm going to share with you very quickly uh, these. Uh, in chapter 2 and verse 7, or Psalm, the second Psalm in verse number 7, uh, it's prophesied that God will declare him to be his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to be his son. And it was fulfilled in Matthew chapter number 3, verse number 17. In Psalm 8, 6, it says, All things were to be put under his feet. This is fulfilled by Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 8. In, chapter, in Psalm 16 and verse 10, it says that he will be resurrected from the dead. Mark chapter 16, verses 6 and 7. Uh, in Psalm 22, 1, it says God will forsake him in his hour of need. In Matthew chapter 27 and verse number 46, we hear him cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In chapter 22, verses, or Psalm 22, 7 and 8, we find that he's going to be scorned and mocked. We find that fulfilled in Luke 23, 35. And again, I've got these written in your notes. So don't try to be writing all of them down. I'll give them to you. In Psalm 22:16, his hands and his feet will be pierced. That's very specific. Written hundreds of years. Listen to this. Hundreds of years before the Roman form of crucifixion was even invented. And it already said that he's going to be pierced in his hands and his feet. And guess what? He was pierced in his hands and his feet. John chapter 20 Verses 25 and 27. It says that others will gamble or cast lots for his clothes in Psalm 22 and verse number 18. And uh, it says in Matthew chapter 27, verses 35 to 36, that it was fulfilled. It says that none of his bones will be broken. This is very interesting because the Roman form of crucifixion was really a suffocation. And as they grew weaker in the heat of the day and with no food and drink, and sometimes they would last even for several days, they would push themselves up to get a breath 
and then slump back down to get rest. And as they became weaker and weaker, basically they would torturously suffocate to death. Because the Lord was crucified on the eve of the Passover, they could not let Him remain on the cross. And so they came and they broke the legs of the men that were hanging on the cross so that they could expedite their dying so they couldn't push up and get that breath. When they came to the Lord Jesus Christ, He had already given up the ghost. And the Bible says that that He did not have His bones broken. You say, is it a coincidence that the Lord Jesus Christ... How do we know that He is who He says He is? There's so much historical and prophetic evidence of this. If even one of these prophecies came true, that'd be amazing. But here in Psalm, a a, a group, a collection of Psalms written by multiple authors over a thousand-year period, every single one of these 22 specific prophecies were fulfilled in the New Testament in the Lord Jesus Christ. It gives us, we don't need the proof as Christians. We believe that He is the Son of God and He is who He says He is. But isn't it wonderful when the Bible proves it for us? It gives us the, 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 the confidence in our faith to believe these things and to hold to these things. And what a joy that is. There are several topics that are covered in the Psalms. Uh, there's jubilation, times of rejoicing. There's times that speak of war. There's times that speak of peace. There's times that speak of worship and judgment. Uh, there's times of prophecy. There's times of praise. And there's times of sorrow and lamentation. Uh, if you'll bear with me, I'm going to take about three more minutes and we'll finish the Psalms in one day. Isn't that a miracle uh, to be able to do that? Uh, there are four things to remember and uh, when you read the Psalms in order to understand them. All right? And uh, that will be a help to you. Number one, rule number one, if a superscript is given, this is the little... Um, little phrases and paragraphs at the beginning of the psalm, just under the title usually, or under the, the where it says Psalm 1 or Psalm 2, and then it'll give a little thing, uh, it'll say like a psalm of Asaph, uh, or something along those lines. There are a number of these, um, about 65 or 70 of them, that have a superscript that give a, a historical setting of why this psalm was written or what it's referring to. When those are given... Uh, as you read that psalm, it helps if you'll understand the historical context that it's set in. And so take the time. I know oftentimes when we read, we don't always read those little extra things there. They are beneficial to help us know and understand the historical settings of this. Uh, rule number two, some of the psalms deal directly with specific and definite aspects of Israel's a form of worship that God gave them specifically. In other words, they're not all going to apply to us today. In other words, when it speaks of a sacrifice being made, we don't make sacrifices today. Um, and so keep that in mind. It still can teach us things and principles. It certainly gives us insight into God and His dealings with His people. And there are great things to be gleaned from that. But keep in mind that when you read these psalms, there are some things that are very, very specific to Israel itself. And uh, be careful not to pull things out of there uh, for today in this, in this uh, New Testament time of the, the church age uh, that uh, are not applicable. Uh, I had a fellow a number of years ago come to me and, and uh, tried to convince me that we were to still be uh, doing all of the Old Testament practices of worship, uh, the sacrifices, the the feast days and the observances of them. And uh, in the New Testament, we are no longer under those things. Uh, 
Do they help us to understand some things about God when we study them? Absolutely. Are they beneficial to us to read about them and, and to know what they are? Absolutely. But they're not necessarily for us to practice today. And so uh, keep that in mind so that you understand it. Uh, many psalms use a very definite structure. There's a, a, a very, very neat way that they're written. Uh, in fact, there are some psalms that uh, will, will be like an acrostic. The first Hebrew letter of each verse used will be all the same letter or, or will form a, a Hebrew word or something along that line. So there's some structure to it. And if you'll understand the structure, it helps to give some insight into the psalm itself sometimes or helps us to understand it if it's written in a, a way that uh, we would not understand it otherwise. And so keep in mind that there are many psalms that have a structure. They are uh, a lot of them that are poetic. And so they're written in a, a meter and a flow of poems. And so keep that in mind also as you read these things. It might be a help to understanding them. And then many psalms anticipate Israel's Messiah. Uh, we know that to be today fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not have that insight in the Old Testament. Uh, but we've got to be careful that we do not overly allegorize everything that we read in the psalms and to the neglect of the historical or the, the grammatical structure of the psalm. Uh, be careful about over-spiritualizing a psalm uh, in the sense of it. <laughs> we, we can read things into, well, that's speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, and it may not be. It may just be speaking about a historical event there. So there are times that that, that does happen. Just be careful that we don't overly do that, that we understand for sure uh, when things are speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ or pointing to Him. Um, the key word is worship, and uh, we certainly... Uh, God is certainly worthy of all of our praise uh, because of who He is primarily, because of what He's done, and because of what He's going to do. These are things we ought to always be praising Him for. Uh, the key verses are Psalm 19:14, But the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in Thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. And then the other key verse would be Psalm 145 and verse 21. The key chapter is Psalm 100. It fits the theme of the, uh, of the book. Uh, the two central themes of the book being worship and praise. And um, Psalm 100 certainly does that. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. It covers all of the parameters of what the Psalms are written for. And so uh, that will be a help to you as you understand uh, some of those things there. It's hard to pick a key chapter or a key psalm, if you will, uh, because there are so many great ones in there. Uh, I'm not saying Psalm 100 is the greatest of all the psalms. It is one that seems to overly encompass uh, the broad view of what the psalms are about. So I hope that will help us as we go to study uh, the psalms. And um, I didn't have you turn to a lot of them today because we were trying to get through them, but I gave you a lot of Scripture references and they are in the notes. I'll make them available here after Sunday school. And I want to encourage you to study the Psalms. They are going to be a blessing to you and a tremendous help. And uh, a wonderful, wonderful set of uh, Psalms that are used there. All right, let's uh, go ahead and stand together, if you will, and let's pray, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we're thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. And, uh, Lord, that you would help us to recall the things that we uh, study. And then, Father, to even pursue further study in them that will take the notes that are given as a framework and delve into uh, these things and, and understand them and note them uh, so that it can be a help to us down the road. 